the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Alna Schütz and this is the Science Inside where we look at some interesting science around a news topic and just in general. Today on the show we are taking it close to home and focusing on a new discovery in the paleosciences. You might think that's about human origins. You might think about things like hominaledi or dinosaur fossils. But really, paleoscience is, is much bigger than that. It's all things prehistoric. And scientists are constantly working on understanding better how all kinds of species have evolved. A significant moment in time to do with this is when fishes and water animals started evolving into land animals, specifically tetrapods. That's four-legged animals which have a vertebra or a spinal column. And this all happened about 360 million years ago. Now, that isn't new to science, but a new perspective on this key event has just come uh, from the Albany Museum in Grahamstown, Uppsala University in Sweden, and the South African DST NRF Centre of Excellence in Paleosciences, which is right here at the University of the Botswana, as well as the Millennium Trust was also involved. So all of those researchers together have just released something very interesting. Because previously, all the samples of these early tetrapods were thought to be from more tropical areas. So we thought that's where this transition of evolution came from. But now, the researchers have found these kind of fossils in the Antarctic Circle. They discovered two new species right here in the Eastern Cape in South Africa, which completely changes where scientists thought these tetrapods evolved and set for foot or rather paw on land. We've got all the details of this discovery in our main story later. We're really going to dig into um, all of the details of that. And this is just one more discovery in line with some of the amazing work South African scientists have done in the paleo scientists, uh, sciences and understanding evolution. If you didn't know whether it's the origin of human life or plants or animals, our country has an amazing wealth of fossils. I never knew that there were so many fossils and dinosaurs here. And it all goes back up to 3 billion years ago. It's quite an incredible thing. And that means we have some pretty incredible brain power in the country. That's why our scientist behind the science today is someone in the highly specialized field and it's quite a small field of paleobotany, which is all about ancient plants. So Aviwe Matiwane is a PhD student at the Department of Botany at Rhodes University. And soon she will be the first black young female PhD holder in paleobotany. How cool is that? So in between those two stories, we're going to take a break from the fossils on the show today with our unscience feature. We always look at something strange, weird and wonderful there. And it is going to be today about sleep paralysis. Uh, so if you have ever experienced that, waking up, being unable to move, do stick around for that part of the show because we're going to look at that specifically why it might happen more frequently if you're a young athlete 
so those are some of the things that we're hoping to get through on the show today. We'll also um, jump through some science news to start it all off. If you have anything to say to us, we'd love to hear from you on social media. It's VowFM, both on Twitter and Facebook. And just make sure you use that hashtag, hashtag science and science, so that we can find all of your opinions. You can also send us a voice note. What do you think about these tetrapods? Do you think they came from Africa originally? Let us know on the WhatsApp line 084078 and if you miss the show or miss any bit of it, don't worry, because it'll be all up on iTunes as the science inside. And the podcast is also on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. So let's kick off the news, uh, which is always how we start the show with this. This week's Science Headline. I'm here with our producer, Bridget LePere. Hi, Bridget. Kick us off on the news. Hi, Elna. Well, in today's news, we are talking about uh, PrEP. So they are saying that pre-exposure prophylaxis could spike new HIV infections, especially among the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community. It is International Pride Month this uh, this month, so I know that uh, there's been a lot of focus on things around the LGBT community, and of course, science and health is part of that. Mm-hmm, of course. And a lead author and sci- social scientist, Martin Holt, of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, conducted a study on pre-exposure prophylaxis, a daily antiretroviral pill, which is taken by uninfected people. And in in this study, Holt realized that though the life-saving PrEP uh, treatment is effective in protecting men in sexual relationships with other men from HIV, could have detrimental effects on those on the treatment in the long term and the focus groups in the study are those in the lgbt community okay so we know that prep treatment is quite effective it's been used um for several years by doctors by all kinds of people that think that they might have been exposed or are likely to be exposed so why is a cause of concern specifically for these lgbt communities well um holt says it prep works so well that he is less concerned actually about the men who are on it but his main concern is the risky behavior that is associated with many that are involved in risky um, sexual encounters because of this pill okay he says that in his study he picked up that those who are not on the treatment are the people who are a cause for concern saying that their new sense of security among their peers or partners who claim to be on this treatment could cause them to relax their condom use consistency, risking the likelihood of infecting those on treatment and also being reinfected. He added that this will or is changing views and perceptions around uh, condom use and will have a ripple effect among this group of men which will increase new numbers of HIV infection leading researchers and HIV combating efforts back to square one. Okay so this is of course a great example of how medicine is not just about science there are social factors 
once you put out a medicine, there might be all kinds of other effects, like the fact that people might um, be more risky with whatever behavior and think, oh, now I can, um, you know, now I can do all kinds of things where previously they might have protected themselves. So this is very interesting to me. But tell us a bit more about the data um, from the study. Where, when was it conducted? Sure. Uh, the Lancet HIV Today carried out a study among 17,000 men in Sydney, Melbourne, who have sex with men were surveyed. The study conducted, uh, it was between 2013 and 2017. What researchers observed from this study was the high jump of HIV negative participants from 2% to 24%. And within the same period, they noticed a decline in consistent condom use from just about half of its participants to about 31% in men who reported having anal sex with casual partners. Okay, so obviously there there is also a factor around exclusive relationships where people are relatively sure or think that they are only with one or a certain amount of partners as, a, as opposed to casual sex where there may be more um, unknown factors. But what else um, came up in this study? This behavior is being compared to risk compensation phenomenon. Okay. Yep. Some studies during the time of um, when the seatbelt laws were being implemented suggested that drivers became more likely to speed or drive recklessly. And that's how this risk compensation theory was coined. Likewise, the heightened risk of HIV infection because of PrEP, just like seatbelts that saves lives, Holt says PrEP is so effective that is that it may more than offset the riskier behavior when risk compensation occurs. Okay, so that makes sense, but do they have a solution? What are we going to do with this? Well, they are suggesting that um, researchers take a better and holistic approach in uh, attending to both HIV and STI uh, prevention efforts because condomless sex may be uh, becoming the new norm and this will change the entire landscape around sex health and education and now that both and uh, both prep and um, infected people are on treatment and that they rarely transmit the virus. So the study suggests that patients who don't want to use condoms all the time should be regularly counseled to con- and to consider both PrEP and uh, also doing uh, STI screening. Mm, I do hope that, uh, that these results bring about uh, new changes in in how we deal with these issues more holistically as you're saying so that it's not just a case of of assuming that people are going to um, have more risky behavior i think it's very important to find these kind of studies in context because of course not necessarily everyone is going to be more more risky just because there is an um something available i think this is very interesting i think to to keep an an eye on and see how the use of these medicines gets used not just the fact that they're around for the sake of time let me tell you about my um about my news story today just jumping ahead but my story comes from uh, MIT that's the Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology via Science Daily 
And it's all about a new technology to recover fresh water from electricity power plants, both those using fossil fuels like coal and nuclear um, and, uh, sorry, fossil fuels like coal, but there's also nuclear plants. All of them need water for cooling. So it's, of course, very important in these water scarce times. And this is quite shocking to me, Bridget, because in the States, over a third of all fresh water is used for electricity plants it then mostly just evaporates and we just lose it beautiful drinking water but thankfully closer to home the estimates by uh, the university of pretoria to the water research commission say that in south africa we're only using between six and eight percent of our water to create electricity well that's a a relief you would think so, except that it's not because our our particular electricity generation usually happens in areas that are quite water scarce. So you're actually taking water away from areas that really need it. So we are estimated, and these are conservative estimates, that by 2025, so the middle of the next decade, we will have at least 230 gigaliters too little water in South Africa. Wow. So this kind of technology is also needed for South Africans. Definitely. So this is, let me just tell you shortly how it works. Um, Basically, air that's full of water vapor is hit with a beam full of electrically charged ions, which then charges the water droplets. That means they're attracted to metal wires now, like sort of a, you can imagine a mesh, um, sort of like those those screen windows, and then uh, the water droplets in the air shoop, go over to the to the mesh, and it drips down, and then bam, you have this beautiful water that you can either put back into the electricity plant, or you can um, put it through drinking water systems. Hmm, that sounds very effective. Yeah, and MIT also thought so because this startup idea was the winner of their recent entrepreneurship competition. And um, the two researchers, Maya Damak and Kripa Varanasi, based it all on Damak's PhD research, which had to do with trying to improve other kinds of harvesting. So actually, they were looking firstly at how in coastal regions this is already being done um, just to catch regular fog in the air, but it isn't working very well because in with those those technologies basically what happens is airflow just moves all the droplets around the mesh and not much gets caught in it so are you saying that zapping with beams of ions changes this yes because now the droplets are electrically charged so they move to the mesh there's some attraction happening and much more is caught, even droplets that normally with the airflow would have just gone straight through the holes in the mesh. So basically, this increases usable water and it's much cheaper. And also, because the water vapor is even denser when it comes from a power plant than just natural fog, this is the perfect place for this technology. And the really great thing is that when you capture evaporated water, you are actually distilling it, meaning the water you get from it is pure even if it was salty or contaminated before. And this new system could recover between 20 to 30% of the water lost from cooling towers. So hold on. Are you saying that, well, you said that it purifies salty water. So if the electricity plant uses seawater, this would basically replace the step of desalination of plants. 
Yes. So those desalination plants that you always hear about um, in Cape Town and other places where we turn seawater to drinking water, this sort of replaces it because it's doing that as a side effect which is very very cool and this whole thing is going to undergo testing on the MIT campus Uh, they actually have a power plant there where they're going to try to do this in the next few months but I really hope that it gets rolled out internationally because it's going to be just one of those really simple solutions making the best of something that um, that we really can improve on wow this is really wonderful news i hope we can actually get to use this kind of technology soon i hope so too um big thank yous to mit for working on these kind of things um that was some of the things in our just science news uh catching you up on some of the things that are happening happening in the world of science but we are getting into paleo sciences today on the show specifically a new discovery of fossils belonging to a geological time long long ago Keep listening. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Hello and welcome to the show. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as VowFM. If you have anything to say, if you want to send us funny dinosaur gifts, that is the place to do it. Because today we are looking at the paleosciences, everything to do with fossils um, which is a type of science that is quite strong in South Africa and we're very fortunate to have amazing discoveries there. So this new discovery is of the first African tetrapod in Grahamstown and it's a story which will hopefully go down in history books forever. The new species, there's two of them, the one is a Tutusius which is named in honor of Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu and the other one is Umzantia and they are Africa's earliest known four-legged vertebrates which were found in an ancient river mouth environment and this shows remains of a marine ecosystem that is 360 million years old can you believe that so this incredible recent find was discovered by dr robert guess and one of his students chris harris following rock cutting explosions by sandral along the n2 in 2016 isn't that incredible that sandral is um is cutting cutting down things, working on the roads, and then we end up with this kind of thing. So Dr. Guess officially publicized his research at a media briefing, which was attended by various media houses, including our producer, Bridget LePere. And and the Minister of Science and Technology was there um, uh, at the Witts Center of Excellence in Paleosciences. So we start now with Professor Bruce Rubridge uh, from the center, introducing the star of the show, Dr. Guess. While you were standing at roads, the bypass road around Grahamstown was being constructed, and in the process, fossils were exposed. As an undergraduate student, Rob spent many hours excavating fossils at the site. And these were all accessioned into the collections of the Albany Museum. He published extensively on these, many of which were new species of animals and plants. And for this work, he obtained his MSc from the University of Fort Hare. Rob then registered for a PhD at Wits to work on the rich fish fauna which he had unearthed at this site. He completed his PhD in a time of three years, which is prescribed for full-time studies, despite having to undergo eye surgery and yet losing the sight of an eye in, in the process. 
Rob's PhD work changed the international perception of the 360 million year old Devonian fish faunas from the entire southern hemisphere. Since his PhD, he's published numerous papers on fossil fish, plants, and invertebrates from the South African Devonian. And now he has made a remarkable discovery, which we are going to hear about today. Specimens are not very complete, which makes it all the more remarkable that Rob recognized them for what they are. So now let's move over to Dr. Guess explaining what exactly tetrapods are. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, everyone, for coming and uh, sharing today with us. It's an exciting day. Today, the publication of this research comes out in science. Now, what we're talking about today is early tetrapods. Now, tetrapod is just a nice short word meaning creatures with four legs and toes. And in Africa, we have an extremely good record of uh, fossil tetrapods. We've got dinosaur fossils spanning the entire range of dinosaur fossils from the earliest dinosaur fossil ever known in Tanzania to the extinction of dinosaurs. We have the uh, record of fossil humans and their emergence from primate ancestors. We have the world's best record of the emergence of mammals from reptile-like ancestors. So far in Africa, the earliest fossil of any tetrapod that we have was this little reptile, Mesosaurus, from 290 million years ago. I mean, that was already quite old. I mean, 50 million years older than the earliest dinosaur. However, the fossils we're talking about today are from 360 million years ago, making them Africa's earliest fossil tetrapods by 70 million years. And that's also 120 million years before the first dinosaur. However, that's not the most exciting thing about this. What's most exciting about this discovery is what exactly these tetrapods are and where they came from in the Devonian world. All backbone animals alive today. We have up here tetrapods, all these four-legged creatures, amphibians, mammals, reptiles, birds. And on the other hand, we have fishes, which don't have arms and legs. Instead, they've got fins. And most of those are raven fishes. They're also sharks and a handful of loathing fishes. But what we're looking at here is where these creatures with legs branched away from their fish ancestors. So the one species, Tutusius umlambo, is approximately a meter long. It is smaller than the other one, the umzantia. The Tutusius is represented by a single bone only from the shoulder girdle called the clathrum which was the first recognized tetrabone, uh, tetrapod bone from Waterloo Farm and discovered by Dr. Guess Wilde's chiseling shale rescued from the 1999 roadworks. The Elvis look very like fish. They are fish. They've got fins on their backs. They've got this keel-like fin at the back there. That's an unpaired fin as well. And then they've got two paired fins, the front ones, which become our arms later, and the back ones, which our legs later. Alpista stegids are kind of halfway up to being tetrapods and they've lost these fins on their back, they've lost that keel fin, they've got almost legs but those legs end in fins. And they've also developed the ability to breathe air two little holes in the back of their skulls. Then you get to tetrapods 
which are a little bit like Mr. Stiegert's, except that rather than having fin webs, they have fingers and toes, or toes, what will become fingers later. So the LP Storstegalians, I hope I'm not butchering that, and they are a combination of fish-like and tetrapod-like characters, also called fisherpods, and the extinction of them gave rise to tetrapods. And according to Dr. Guest, the first important clues are here in distinguishing tetrapods and their fish-like ancestors, and you do this by looking at the bone structure. So he says this clerithrum is the bone that helps point out that South Africa is now home to the very first African tetrapods. Now, what is known by this stage up until today of Devonian tetrapods, this very important ancestral group, is summarized here. There are two complete skeletons here, and those are from Greenland. They are really important because having these two skeletons that are very different from each other, but similar in their basic adaptations, has allowed the identification of all these other species from various other parts of the world. And the reason why we can say that for example, this creature here or this creature here are tetrapods is because there are a lot of very important skeletal changes that occur. Briefly, you can see the skull across this transition has a lot of changes. Fishes have eyes piped far forward and a snout made up of a whole lot of little bones. Well, by the time you get to tetrapods, the eyes are quite far back, and the nose is a quite a large nose, but made up of a small number of large bones. The movement of the eyes back is reflected in the cheek of these things, so you can see that in fishes, the eye is, uh, the bottom of the eye socket is made up of this little bone here, which is called the primal, or it's called the front bone, and in elpicistegans, which are halfway to being tetrapods, the eye socket is made up of both of these bones, the front bone and this other bone, the jugal. Whilst in tetrapods, the bottom of the eye socket is entirely made up of the jugal. These are the kind of differences that allow us to identify from fragmentary bones the uh, identification where in this thing any creatures are. The lower jaw of tetrapods is also extremely distinctive. So another bone that distinguishes those tetrapods from Alpistostegalians is the transition of the very dominant shoulder girdle, which will support then what later becomes the legs of the tetrapod. So this the scapulocoracoid, hmm, big words in today's story, uh, dominates the shoulder girdle. It is distinctly different from one that would support a fin. That is, of course, a very very important difference between um, water animals and land animals, usually. And it allows for a lot of muscular attachment, including in front of the shoulder joint. This allows for back and forward movements of the tetrapod, both for walking and swimming. Now, all those little bones have allowed us to, in the past, to understand the, these are where the continents were in the Devonian. We take them back there as Africa in the middle of the continent of Gondwana, with Australia's in the north of Gondwana. China there is a separate little block. And the other main continent here was Laurasia, made up of North America, Greenland, and Europe. So you can see that the majority of stem tetrapods were found here in Laurasia. There's one bit of jaw from China's 
and one bit of jaw from Australia, and also a couple of footprints found in Australia. So it's quite clear that almost all the tetrapod remains found from the Devonian were found largely along the equator with a few outliers, but within the equatorial region between 30 degrees north and south of the equator. So now that has led to a generally accepted view in science that all of tetrapods, and even the half tetrapods, these Elpistostegans, they were all within the tropics, almost all within Laurasia, called Laurasia there, it's an alternate name for this continent. And that has led to what it says here in this article in Scientific American. As a result, that's as a discovery of all these other species as a, based on the limited material. It is now apparent that these animals live throughout the tropics and subtropics of the ancient landmass. Very interesting also is just to clarify that these tetrapods did not move to land because they had to adapt. It wasn't, um, you know, a highly threatening environment or anything like that. It had more to do with the fact that shallow waters actually caused them to move from water living to land living. And that's, of course, how we get... Um, uh, all kinds of, of uh, land animals coming from that one moment in in ancient history. What an incredible discovery um, that I think will open up all kinds of other um, other discoveries or understandings around this moment in, in prehistoric or really early times. This discovery, of course, is not just interesting on an international level, but locally and what it means for South African paleosciences that we have a part of this incredibly most important, crucial other node in the evolution of our ancestors, the node from fish to tetrapods, and when you add that to our record of the evolution of mammals from reptile-like ancestors and the evolution of humans from primates, South Africa can now claim to have the best record in the world of any country showing our evolution from fish Thank you. Big claims, but also big discoveries coming there from that story from our producer, Bridget Lepere, about this new discovery um, in the paleosciences. We will look at some more paleosciences, specifically paleobotany. Uh, later in the show with our scientists behind the science. But for now, do stay with us because we're going to take a little bit of a light break in between as we always do with our weird and wonderful and science right after this. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. It's time now for Unscience in the middle of a show all about paleoscience. We take a moment to look at something different something slightly unusual within research, something in science that you will say, what, really? I did not know that. Sometimes it's funny. Today it's a little bit more serious and I think close to home for some of you if you've ever woken up um, with this particular condition. Today's Unscience is with Gloria Mabuza who joins me in studio. Hi, Glory. Hi, Elna. So the research was conducted by Michael Grander and his team at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. And the article that we're talking about today came through Science Daily. We also have some music from Chess Music on YouTube. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. 
<laughs> Glory, what's going on? Have you ever drifted away in sleep only to find yourself somewhere between half awake and half asleep? No, but that sounds very scary. Well, now imagine that your eyes are wide open but your body is numb and stiff. And then suddenly you feel a creepy shadow approach but you cannot move your body to try and react to it. The worst is when you try and scream for help, but you find yourself not being able to even open your mouth. So, you there, you lay there helplessly watching it all unfold. Dory, this is the science show. This is not the show where we're reviewing creepy movies. Well, it certainly sounds like a real-life horror movie, but someone once said, you will never ever no true fear until you experience sleep paralysis oh i've heard of this um i know a friend who get this regularly and it sounds very scary to me it's never happened to me personally but i definitely have a lot of empathy for people who wake up with sleep paralysis so tell us more well it turns out that there's a higher chance of you getting it if you are a young athlete and are lacking sleep okay so, sleep paralysis in general only affects about less than 8% of the world's population. Although it's very highly uncommon, we can certainly agree that it is a very traumatic experience. So now imagine having to live with this traumatic experience on a weekly, daily, on a weekly basis. Oh, I don't think I'd ever really get used to it, to be honest with you. Yep. No one can ever get used to it. So, a recent study by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine suggests that sleep paralysis or hallucinations occur when you're falling asleep or waking up are most common in student athletes and are usually associated with symptoms of depression. Oh, wow. I can already imagine being a student athlete um, and, and just everything that comes with it, all the pressure, you're already dealing with that. Now you have sleep paralysis and now higher levels of depression. Yeah. This is very worrying. It really is. So the study conducted by Michael Grandner at the University of Arizona College of Medicine reported that occasional sleep paralysis was seen in 8% of the athletes and only 7% reported that it happens to them at least once a week. There's also hypnopompic hallucinations which are dreamlike experiences that occur while asleep or waking up. These were reported by a quarter of the athletes and about 10% of the athletes reported that they only experienced these symptoms at least once per week. It was also seen that these people also had like a higher depression score. But guess what? The most relieving thing about this is that these symptoms are relatively harmless and very rare. Okay, so why are student athletes... Um in the focus of this why are they getting this in particular well it's mainly due to uh, them having busy schedules so however the researchers say that they can be very distressing to those who experience them okay I can I can imagine that there's just with a slower sleep you know you you're sleeping less you're just generally getting poor sleeping quality maybe you have to get up early to train maybe you're training late I can imagine that especially if you're also a student on top of being an athlete this can be quite a lot but while obviously all of our listeners aren't student athletes there's a deeper lesson here I guess for all of us who are not getting enough sleep yep 
while they often struggle to find more time to rest during their busy schedules, so with shorter sleep duration and poor sleep quality, there's more disordered sleep in many student athletes. In addition, these sleep symptoms such as sleep paralysis and hallucinations are more common in younger adults in general. Okay, so so if you're listening out there, whether you have a crazy busy schedule because you're a student athlete or whatever other reason, um, there there's really something to be learned here because in general this can happen to you if these other factors that are not directly related to your sleep are happening. Yes, true. That was our unscience for today. Thank you so much, Gloria Mabuza, for sharing it with us. Next up, we have our scientists behind the science. We have paleobotanist Aviwe Matiwane from the Albany Museum at Rhodes University. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elma. Hello and welcome to the last bit of the show where what we do is look at not just science but the people working hard behind it. Today on the show we've been looking at quite a lot of paleosciences so we can continue this theme now with Aviwe Matiwane who is a PhD student candidate at the Department of Botany at Rhodes University and is also a recipient of a doctoral bursary from the Department of Science and Technology and the National Research Foundation Center of Excellence in Paleosciences. When she has completed her PhD in paleobotany, which is a science that involves the study of ancient plants and ecosystems, as you can imagine, she will be the first black young female to complete a PhD in this highly specialized field, which is pretty incredible given the fact that there are only three paleobotanists in South Africa, as far as I'm told, which is a a very competitive and tiny field, I can imagine. Um, Matiwana was raised in a small village in the Eastern Cape, and her MSc is focused on the biodiversity of the southern mistbelt forests of her home province. She's currently working on a paleobotanical and biostratigraphic project um, and is is focused specifically on fossils that are based at the Albany Museum. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us on the Science Inside. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to hear from you how you decided on a career in a field that is quite quite tiny. Paleobotany is not something that little kids are saying to each other they want to you know, get into when they grow up. I know. It's quite amazing because paleobotany actually found me. I, during my master's, my MSc, I decided I wanted to volunteer at the Albany Museum just to get the stress out of writing my thesis. And after volunteering there and looking at uh, the fossil connections, uh, my super, my current supervisor, Dr. Rose Perrick, in, uh, suggested that I should uh, do a project in paleobotany. And I was reluctant at first because it was something that I didn't know. But when I was immersed in it, it was absolutely amazing. And I don't regret it one bit. So I 
after afterwards, um, it was it was just an amazing thing for me to actually experience. So I'm still continuing with it, and I will continue with it. Mm. Now, between you and me, there are some obvious stars of the paleo science as well. Everybody yes. wants to hear about their favorite dinosaur, T. Rex. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to hear about where humans come from. Tell me a yes. bit more about the study of fossil plants. What does it teach us about ourselves and our continent? Why should we care? It's quite amazing because paleo plants uh, actually tell us about what type of insects were around during the time through uh, fossil, I mean, plant-insect interactions. You see them, uh, the traces of um, of them having eaten the plants. You also, uh, they also tell us about what food was available for bigger animals during that time. And also, what's important about my plant, the plant that I'm studying, Dysoptris, it was one of the plants that was used to confirm, actually to support the theory of continental drift. That is, that most of the, like the continents were once one. So because it was found in Antarctica, Southern Africa, Australia, India, and South America, so um, that's very important for us. And um, so it's actually contributed towards uh, major discoveries in history as well. Oh, wow. And this particular plant that you speak of, the Glossopterus, um, is is the plant that you presented about in Fame Lab, the very yes. famous science communication um, uh, competition, and you were one of the finalists uh, last year. Tell us a bit about what you learned during that process of Fame Lab about communicating your science and making people care about it. It was one of the most difficult experiences in my life, but worth it. And I would encourage any young scientist to actually do it. Most of our scientists are so glued in our fields that we lose touch in actually communicating with people. And even in simpler ways, uh, we're so used to communicating in jargon and because we're always talking to our peers most of the time. And uh, it was a good experience for me because... I didn't know how to communicate uh, in simple words and in simple terms to people about my science. So I learned a lot from that experience, and I hope a lot of people can actually take that and go ahead with it. Mm. So giving you a chance to to communicate, as you say, some of some mm. of the greater work in, in the field. Tell us yes. a bit about what South African paleobotanists, beyond what you've already mentioned, have uh, come to terms with in terms of understanding our ancient ecosystems, trying to understand and explain what ancient South Africa looked like and what might have happened in evolution. It's quite, a, it's quite amazing because uh, not much of the work has been done in ecological terms. Most of the work that's been done is uh, taxonomy, so describing the plants themselves. So now our, our team at the Albany Museum is one of the first that will actually describe uh, paleo environments and paleo ecosystems, um, reconstructing them for South Africa and hopefully Gondwana. So it's the first time that it's actually being like happening in in. In, in, our, in our country. So um, that's a first. But in terms of history, it's mostly been paleo describing uh, the, the taxonomy. So what type of plant it is instead of um, actually having saying some implications about the plants themselves. Hmm. And if you could dream for a second, what would be one of the big breakthroughs that you'd love to see in your career within this field? Well, one of the breakthroughs, breakthroughs, sorry, is that 
for my for the work that I'm actually doing is I'm answering a question that is 200 years old about how many of these plants they actually are. So if I can actually answer that, hopefully I'm actually going to answer it by the end of this year. Uh, that will be a total breakthrough and it will actually help other scientists to actually, it will help with the taxonomy of these plants around the world as well. Because we all, we're also trying to create a database that will uh, be available uh, nationally and internationally for researchers across the world to actually use to compare these plants, uh, these fossil plants uh, with each other. So that would actually help uh, in the broader um, effect of the study. Mm. Everywhere you speak so passionately and I love hearing from young scientists on the show, especially during Youth Month. Can you leave us Thank with you. your your parting message about your field and, and maybe an encouragement for young people to think about sciences that maybe aren't the most obvious? I would say that young scientists actually need to follow their passion. They shouldn't really, I know we, we are in, we don't come from financially uh, stable families, but if you can follow your passion, it does show and you work hard. And I would also encourage young scientists to actually not compare their achievements with other people. Uh, just celebrate the small achievements that you have and you'll prosper and um, just be happy and be kind as well. So uh, moving forward, uh, please just do not give up on yourself. Work hard. Just put in the work and you will achieve anything that you want. Mm. Encouraging words there from Aviwe Matawane, who's joining us as our scientist behind the science today from the Department of Botany at Rhodes University, working towards her PhD in paleobotany. Um, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's been a really good conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This is still the science inside. We are wrapping up the show in a second. Free airtime alert. Drop us a WhatsApp voice note on 084-078-4912 and get your free time on air. See what I did there? Another hour done on the science inside, specifically about paleo science today. It's been great to just show some appreciation for the amazing science that is done around um, ancient fossils, whether they are around animals and tetrapods, fish that um, have started living or evolving into land animals, or plants, as we heard in our Scientist Behind the Science, and hearing about how plants can tell us so much more, plant fossils rather, can tell us so much more about how our Earth evolved. It's been a really interesting one, and a big thank you goes out to all of our guests featured on the show, including Aviwe Matiwane, Dr. Robert Guess, and Professor Per Alberg of the Uppsala University in Sweden. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere and Gloria Mabuza today, and tech as always by the wonderful Kutlano Seame the podcast if you have not yet subscribed you can find us on iTunes of course and if you're not on iTunes vits.journalism.coza forward slash science is where you can download all of them or just find us on Facebook or Twitter it is VowFM my name is Elna Schutz you've been listening to the Science Inside which is produced by the Vits Radio Academy funded in part as always by the South African Department of Science and Technology it's been great talking science with you and I will join you again next week
The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power FM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.